0: We all have our personal El Guapos to face. (laughs) Your El Guapo may be your shyness. Your personal giant may be your bad personality. Your El Guapo, that giant you face, may be your lack of education. It may be all of these things. That is not what this is about, okay? This is not about how you kill the giants in your life. This is not about being a good, wise warrior who picks up the smooth stone of bravery and faithfulness and fidelity and courage and walks into battle with your stones in order. OK, that's not what this is about. It's not about the danger of being overconfident. It's about not about knowing the weakness of your enemy and hitting him where it's going to hurt. That's not at all what this story is about what this passage is about this passage is about what you read later on in chapter 17 just look down if you will toward really almost toward the end of the account the philistine i'm reading in 17 verse 44, the Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beast of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beast of the earth. Here it is that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all of this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. So that's what first Samuel chapter 17 is about. That's what this pivotal account is about for us as we come to it, as we come to this passage. Now, here if you want a synopsis of the whole biblical record and how 1 Samuel chapter 17 fits into that, it's about God's eternal plans and purposes for his people. And about the eternal enemy that has faced those plans and purposes since Genesis 3. And it's about how... One who is greater than David, one who is the king, capital K, comes into the scene, comes onto the scene and crushes the serpent's head just like God said he would in Genesis chapter 3. And that that champion, that king, stands in the gap on behalf of God's people and accomplishes our victory for us. And it's the victory not over nine-and-a-half-foot giants. It's over the victory of sin and death and hell. Those are the giants we face. Those are, that's what we need to be aware of. So as we read this account, here's what many would want to do. And probably what many of us learned to do when we first heard about David and Goliath as kids. We want to stand in David's place, right? Right? We want to be brave little David, who picks up his sling and picks out his, his his rocks from the creek bed there. But we are not David. We are the frozen, fearful Israelite army. In this account, that's who we are. And we are faithless, fearful Saul, lots of times, who is too afraid to do what it is God has called him to do. So we are not David. We are filled with fear and unbelief. And at the beginning of the text, we need to recognize that. Otherwise, the champion who comes on the scene later will mean nothing to us. Other than just a good role model. <laughs> and that's not what thats not what we, what we have here. We are too often afraid. And listen, guys, we are too often afraid of the wrong things. We're not afraid of what we should be fearful of. Because our greatest threat... Is not flesh and blood. Regardless of who they are. Or what they wear. Or how they live. Our greatest threat is our own heart. Our greatest threat. Is sin. And death. And and Satan. Who wants to devour. We need a hero who can beat him. And that's what. That's what this passage is about let's read a portion of it. We're going to read the first, just this first section, and our focus today is on the enemy. Okay? It's on the enemy. Lord willing, we'll take three weeks to work our way through this chapter, and as we begin it, we're going to focus on the enemy that opposes God. We're going to look at the cultural and scriptural setting for what's happening here in this chapter. And I want us to recognize at the beginning that the serpent of Genesis three has offspring. And one of them's a big boy. <laughs> one of them's a big boy who's on this field of battle today. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they gathered at Soho, which belongs to Judah. And encamped between Soho and Azekah in Ephes-Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah. And drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side. With a valley between them. And there came out of the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath whose height was six cubits and a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and the spearhead weighed 600 shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So let's begin by looking at the physical setting because it's significant. It's important that we kind of get a lay of the land and understand what's going on here. And so I've got this, this picture, if you will and this physical setting gives us this understanding that the enemy has come in to the promised land the enemy has come into the land of judah it's important for us to recognize what's happening here geopolitically as we see this unfolding before us it mentions two places it mentions between soho and azekah and if you look you see soho on your left and azekah on the right and so this picture of that central part of Judah, that promised land given to the tribe of Judah, is where this focus is on. And so there in between Azekah and Soho, we have these two mountain ranges, if you will. These two hill, you know, these two hills. I'm not sure they're real mountains. And in between them is a valley. It's a perfect place for a fight. Really. I mean, the Philistines are on one side. The Israelites are on the other, and in between them is this amazing valley. I mean, it looks like a great place to fight a war, to fight a battle, don't you think? And what's going on there is this this picture of this setting of the promised land. This is the land that God has promised to Israel. And if we were to go back and read... In the book of Joshua, in chapter 15 and verse 35, what specific towns or, or areas do you suppose God promised to the people of Judah? Soho and Azekah. The point is that the Philistines have encroached into the very land that's been promised to the people of God. In effect, what's been undone is the conquest of the land that had been accomplished in the book of Joshua. And so the enemy has come right into the middle of it. They've encroached further into the land of Israel than they have all the way through First Samuel so far. Some commentators say that the enemy has heard that Saul has lost his mind. That the spirit had left Saul. And so they want to take advantage of the fact that there appears to be, clearly from this early picture of this battle, no leadership at all among Israel. Nobody's leading them, nobody's putting them in the place where they should be. And so here they are, the promised land once again is like the wilderness, and that the enemy is pursuing the people of God. And not only that, what happens here is that giants are back in the land. Remember what happened when Israel entered into the promised land? Do you remember why they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years? It tells us in Numbers when they told, this is the report of the spies after they've come back from the promised land. We came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey. And this is its fruit. And they're bearing up on their shoulders grapes that they had cut. So big and heavy that two men carried them between them. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's an awesome place. However... It says in verse 28 of Numbers 13, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we saw the descendants of Anak there. The descendants of Anak are giants. So here the Philistines gather for battle on this battlefield. And it's interesting, in the grammar of the Hebrew, the Philistines gathered is an active verb. They are the aggressor. The Israelites, on the other hand, it's a passive verb that describes. They were gathered. They're just there. They're not being aggressive. They're not being proactive. They're not pursuing. There is no proactive leadership up until this point in time. For 40 days this goes on, we'll read in the text. Goliath comes out every day, two times a day, by the way, at the time of sacrifice, defying the God of Israel and defying the people Of God. And they cower. They are cowards. They are afraid. That's the physical setting. What's amazing about this is what kind of a king did Israel want? They wanted a king to go before them to face their enemies. And they got a giant of a man in Saul. He's a shoulder head higher than any other Israelite. But here he is with the rest of his army. Cowering in the camp. There's a spiritual scenario here as far as a physical scenario, okay? And to understand that spiritual scenario, turn in your Bible over to the book of Hebrews. Flip over in your New Testament to Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 3. The writer of Hebrews kind of just gives us an an overarching assessment of what we see taking place earlier in the life of Israel when they're coming through the wilderness. But the the remnants of that attitude, the remnants of that sin are, are still with them here even. In, Genesis chapter, excuse me, in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is just pointing out for us and illustrating for us how Jesus is greater than Moses and Jesus is greater than Joshua. And the rest that was offered to the children of Israel to come into the promised land has been compromised because they did not take God at his word. Unbelief kept them from that. And I'll just read, this is one of the the strong warnings that comes in the book of Hebrews in chapter 3 and verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold the original confidence firm to the end. There is a promise of rest. There is a promise of deliverance. And the spiritual scenario here is that Israel earlier in their history was afraid to enter the land because of giants. And now because of unfaithfulness on the part of their leader who has not done the one thing he was called to do, which is fight the Philistines and conquer them. And he had opportunities to do that earlier. Now they face giants again. And now unbelief has them cowering in their camp. 40 days, 40 years. The numbers are significant. And the man Saul, without the Spirit of God, cannot stand up to anything. Even his own heart. And so that's this picture that we have of this physical and spiritual scenario. What about the physical enemy? What about this one who comes now to face them? Look at the description that's given there. It's... It's amazing to see what the writer here in 1 Samuel 17 tells us about Goliath. First we have his name, okay? Goliath of Gath. Now we'll only hear his name twice in the account. The rest of the time he's the Philistine, or this Philistine. But here he's called Goliath of Gath. And the name just sounds menacing, right? Goliath. Wow, I don't know many folks named Goliath, okay? It's one of those biblical names I've just never run across anybody else. Because who would want to put that on their child, you know? Your future's laid out for you, all right? Goliath, there's a, there's a menacing sound to that name. And, and from now on, he's going to be seen for the most part just as the Philistine. But he is the Philistine of Gath. He is Goliath of Gath. And as we saw on the map, way back in the background, you saw Gath there, which is the hometown of this giant. And it's the place, once again, that takes us back to the initial exodus and the wilderness journey. And then as they first came into the promised land, because Joshua defeated the descendants of those who now dwell in Gath. Joshua defeated those who were called the Anakim. And they were located in Gaza and along that stretch of the Holy Land. Gath is Goliath's hometown. And the Anakim are probably Goliath's descend you know, his, his predecessors. He comes from that line. So he comes from this line of enemies of God. And the text tells us that he is a champion. Did you see that? There came a champion in verse 4 out of the camp of the Philistines. This is interesting. The name champion literally means the man in between. So in between the Philistine army and the army of Israel comes this man who stands in between. And as he comes and takes his place here in between, he comes as a challenger to one and as a champion for the other. And his defiance and his arrogance is just, listen, listen to him as he talks, okay? We'll hear that later on after his armor is described. But he just comes out looking for a mono a mono fight. He will get it. <laughs> but, but not the way that, that he thinks he will, okay? So here's Goliath of Gath, and he's a champion. He is the man in between. And he's huge, I mean, there's no way around it. Now, you may read commentators. You may read some commentary someplace where they will say that there are ancient manuscripts and there's places that look at his height not as six cubits, but as four. And some commentators say it really doesn't matter whether he is nine six or six nine. He's still large to the average Hebrew who would have been much shorter than that. I think he's nine feet tall. I think he's, he's massive. And the details of his size Should remind us of what JT told us two weeks ago and then again last week. Don't look at his appearance. Don't look with physical eyes simply at his size. The appearance of his height or the appearance of his stature is what Samuel was told not to look at. But give me a break, Samuel. (laughs) 9 6 this is a big man standing out there in that field. It's hard not to see him. It's hard not to look at him. And only a fool would be completely unafraid in some ways, it seems, right? I mean, his size is menacing. As a man sees, this guy's intimidating. But the armor is what should catch our attention, because it is unlike any other description that we see in first and second Samuel. We're not going to hear about David's armor any place other than one place where he does get Goliath's sword. But here Goliath's armor is specifically given for us in great detail. He had a helmet of bronze. He had a coat of mail. Literally, it says he wore scales. That's what the Hebrew word means. He wore scales. And the weight of those scales was massive, 126 pounds is how much his coat of armor weighed. All right? And he was armed with this coat of mail, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, so his shins are covered. He had a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. Some say it was probably a sword, a sword rather, you know, something that he could just reach back with his hand and grab from between the scabbard in between his shoulders for hand-to-hand combat, which he probably didn't have very often. All right. So he had that in between his shoulders. And then he carried this spear. And I've not found anybody who can tell me what a weaver's beam looks like. I just know it's big. Because the spearhead weighs 15 pounds. So this 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 piece of wood that has this 15 pound spearhead on it. This is a menacing man physically. And he is menacing with the armor that he wears. But the detail of the armor is given to us with such specificity. That it's called for us to take notice of that and recognize something that's very unique about that. And I'll bring that to our attention here in just a second. But as he comes out, he comes out with this this picture of defiance, this picture of power, this picture of size. And notice that word defiance. I defy the ranks of Israel down in verse 10. In all of these narrative accounts, and narratives are hard sometimes. They're hard to preach because there's so much there. They're sometimes hard to read and then catch the main focus. And that's why you need a Bible study help. You need something that's going to help you find words that may not be as clear in the English as they might be in the original language. But the word defy helps us understand what 1 Samuel 17 is about because it's repeated six times in this chapter. The idea of defying God or defying the people of God or defying the character of God. The word there actually means to blaspheme. It means to taunt. It means to... To hold in derision, if you will, or to disgrace something. This giant comes out on the field of battle twice a day to disgrace the people of God, to dishonor the name of God, and blaspheme the God of Israel. That's what he's here to do. And those who are listening with physical ears don't feel much of anything except fear. But there will be another champion in or onto the field of battle next week who sees not as a man sees and who hears not as a man hears. And we've already read that. David will come onto that field of battle and said, who, what will happen to the man who rids Israel of this reproach? Who takes away this defiance? What award will be given to the one who Kills this one who defies God and his people. That's what's going on. God is being defied. Defiance. That's the central theme in this chapter, okay? But as we look at this physical specimen of a man and and see the artwork, if you will, the skill of Philistine metalwork, which is the reason Israel was in so much disarray most of the time against the Philistines because they did not have that resource. But as we see this giant clothed in his armor, drawn up for battle here, we need to see this with spiritual eyes. Because Goliath is not just simply a giant. He is a serpent. Remember, he's wearing scales. He's wearing scales. Psalm 115 verse 8 says that those who build idols or make idols will become like them. I mentioned that only because earlier, remember Dagon, the Philistine god? That couldn't stand up before the ark. He was a merman, okay? He was half scaled and half man. Well, here is this Philistine giant who worships Dagon wearing scales. And he will end up like his God. He will end up like his God. So here, Israel is facing a serpent. And what we find about this, what's interesting about this, is that we see this from a spiritual standpoint, is that the real enemy that's on this page here is not a nine-foot giant. The real enemy that's on this page here is the enemy of God's people from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through to the end, when we see in the book of Revelation that the whore is defeated and, and God's kingdom is established. Goliath is a descendant of the serpent. Goliath is a descendant of the offspring that God said would be opposed to the Son of Man. Goliath just comes in a long line of those who defy God and his people, who feels like he has in his hands the power of death. And so the serpent's warfare against Eve and against her descendants that began in Genesis 3 is continuing here in 1 Samuel chapter 17. We see this in the whole picture of God's word. And what we see going on in the valley of Eli here, what we see taking place in between these two mountains is just a, a, a type, if you will. It's a foreshadow of the victory that's going to come for us in Christ. Saul is called out to go on that field of battle and face that serpent. And he cannot. He will not. So one greater than Saul will come and go on to that field of battle. But David won't be the one who will ultimately conquer. David will not be the one who will ultimately give us the victory that we need. David is better than Saul, and he's better than Adam in some ways. But he's not Jesus. And Jesus will come onto that field of battle. And as Jesus comes onto this field of battle that we see unfolding in the rest of scripture, he is the true Israel, he is the true king, he is the ser- true serpent crusher, He is the one who comes in fully trusting God and putting his faith in God, defeating giants and securing for us our victory and our inheritance. That's what 1 Samuel 17 is about. And as we see this menacing enemy here, it should cause us to recognize that there is an enemy that faces us that indeed is fearful. But it should not cause us to turn our eyes away from the author and finisher of our faith, as the writer of Hebrews tells us. Because Jesus entered into that wilderness for 40 days. Remember Mark 1? And he faced the serpent for 40 days there. He faced down that snake. And in the power of the Holy Spirit came out of that wilderness experience. Trusting in God and in his word and coming to deliver those who are in captivity. That's our champion. That's our king. So an application that we have from this portion of it right here is simply this. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. We don't fight nine foot giants. That's not our enemy. Our enemy is spiritual forces of evil and wickedness in the heavenly places. And our battle then is a battle first in the mind and in the heart. We take captive those thoughts, Paul tells us in Second Corinthians we go into this battle clothed in the full armor of God with the one weapon that we wield being the Word of God. That's why Paul can tell us that the Scriptures are breathed out by God and are profitable for teaching, for reproof, and for instruction so that you and I can be well-equipped and trained in righteousness when we enter into that conflict. And called to enter it, we are. Called to enter it, we are. And so these giants that we face, listen guys, they're more intimidating than this nine and a half foot Philistine. They are. But as we, as, as we recognize that, that that giant we face is sin. And it is death. It is the grave. It is, it is the serpent. It is Satan who seeks to devour us. We, we face real spiritual enemies here. And so the passage ends as where we're at for today. Look at verse 11. When Saul and all Israel heard these words, and the words that they heard are just this challenge. Why have you come out and drawn up for battle? He says, you're not here to fight. He says, I am a Philistine and you are servants of Saul. There's defiance even in that. There's, there's insult in that. In, in the Hebrew, it's actually, I am the Philistine and you are slaves of Saul. So here I am a warrior and there you are slaves and servants. What are you doing out here? That's the, that's the idea. That's the attitude behind what, Saul, what, what Goliath is saying here. And he says, I'll make a deal. Here's the deal. Now we'll see him lying. <laughs> that's not what happens in the end, right? What he says there in verse 9, we'll be your servants if you beat us. We'll see how that plays out. But his defiance is there on this page. The real enemy are spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And these men are filled with fear, it tells us down there in verse 11. They're dismayed and greatly afraid. And and rightly so, from a physical standpoint. Rightly so. This passage ends in fear. But this day does not. We need to recognize that. Chapter 17 does not end in fear. When we read the full account, and when we, as we have just sung, know the full story, then the prayer of Hannah should come echoing back in our ears from chapter 2. As Hannah prayed, the adversaries of the Lord shall be crushed, broken in pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Here's where my mind's been really for two weeks as I've been thinking about this champion Goliath. The man in between. My mind went back to what Paul tells us in First Timothy chapter 2 verse 5. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus. Amen. Goliath is the man in between on this field of battle. When I stand before God. I want my champion. The man in between. To be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's who I want to be my champion. Because he alone has conquered sin, death and the grave. And we stand this side of heaven and we're like the psalmist when he says in Psalm 74.10, How long, O God, is the foe to scoff? The psalmist asks the question, Is the enemy to revile your name forever? Man, here as we come to the end of Pride Month, we wonder, How long, O God, are you going to allow these things to go on? And then we're reminded, My battle's not against flesh and blood. My battle is not against those who would worship themselves, or their sexuality, or their identity as the culture tells them who they are. That's my attitude toward them is one of love. My attitude toward them is to be one of of, of concern, yes, but of love and of deep desire to see them reconciled to the God who created them. That's that's their enemy. Their enemy is their own soul, their own self that's so broken and twisted by sin, and I'm reminded that I used to be that way, and God has rescued me out of that. Praise Him for the champion Jesus. It ends in fear in verse eleven. The story does not end there. Turn over to the book of Romans. Couldn't believe you referenced this earlier j. t it's like, wow, we didn't talk about it. We didn't talk through this at all. This is our champion. This is our man in between. If you come to Jesus today, if you put your faith and trust in Christ. Verse 31, what shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Jesus Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God and who is indeed interceding for us. Do you hear what Paul is saying there? What giant is there that can come on to the field of battle and bring a charge against us? None, if you're in Christ. None. None. And who is it that has the authority or the power or the ability to stand up and bring a charge against you, to condemn you, to bring your standing before God into question? The only one who has the authority to do that is Jesus, who has died and been raised and is at the right hand of God, interceding as our champion. So in verse 36, so Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No. Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are killed all the day long. We're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through our champion, through Jesus, through him who loved us. For I am sure. I am sure. That neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor thing present nor things to come nor powers, heights, or depth, or anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Pray with me. Father, I pray you take this word today and you'd plant it deep in the hearts of us, your people. Father, I also pray that if there is anyone here who has never trusted in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that God, right now, they would turn from that sin. They would trust in Jesus as their champion. That they would repent of it, turn from it, and turn to You, Lord. You alone can save. You alone are our champion. Jesus, You alone are the one who is in between holy and righteous God and the judgment that we deserve. And we thank you for that grace. We thank you for your sufficiency in all things. And so, Father, I pray that you'll just take this word and do a work in each of our hearts. Bring some to faith. Bring us all, I pray God, to the renewal of the love that we have for Christ. And the worship that should fill our hearts and our lives because of who he is as our king, as our God, as our champion, as our savior. And I pray that in His name. Amen.